Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Now today is a very special podcast. We managed to get an interview with Christopher Monfett, who's been writing the new Boom Studios comics with Clive Barker, which we were very pleased to get. And we had a chat with him over Skype. We were over in London, he was in New York which was fantastic. So, uh, first of all, apologies if the sound quality might be a little odd, but um, it's because we were recording it over Skype. So, um, I still think it sounds pretty good, but... Yeah. So, without further ado, we hope you enjoy our interview with Christopher Monfett. Right, so we're very lucky now to be having a chat with Christopher Monfett, one of the writers of the new Hellraiser comic. Hi, Chris, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for agreeing to have a chat with us. Um, so first of all, for those who don't really know much about you or your background, could you just tell us a little bit about your career up to now and, and also how you got involved in the project of the Hellraiser comic? Yeah, uh, well, I think, you know, the sort of the first step toward getting involved was really having fallen in love with the material, you know, years ago. Um, you know, I think the first Hellraiser movie I ever saw uh, was, God, the third one. Uh, I think <laughs> I just picked it up from, like, the video store one day. And, you know, I thought it was, like, kind of cool, and it inspired me to go back and really check out the, the first two, because um, I had remembered reading the uh, the original novella a couple years before that, um, and sort of, like, really fell in love with the first and second films. And, you know, I think, obviously, as you guys know, that um, there's a ton of inspiration, and there's just a ton of, like, artistic depth to mine there, and I think yeah. that's what we've been trying to do with the comics, and... Uh, so, you know, Clive was always a huge inspiration for me. I mean, I've always said that the two um, the two first books, you know, sort of young adult or adult books I ever read were The Thief of Always and Eyes of the Dragon by Stephen King. <laughs> um, and then the second set of books I ever read were A Magica and The Stand. So, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like taking a giant leap forward um, at a rather young age. And so, you know, Clive was, has always been a huge influence on my work. And, you know, I've always been a writer, but... There was a point in my career where I was doing entertainment journalism for a website called IGN. Maybe you know it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and through them, uh, I had decided that I, I wanted to reach out to Clive and see if we could sort of catch up on what his projects were. Uh, and then we just had, you know, the most amazing, like, two days of just interviewing. I had ten questions and got six hours worth of <laughs> wow. uh, interview. Um, and shortly after that, we, we just struck up an ongoing conversation, and he asked me to adapt... Uh, one of his short stories from the Book of Blood, uh, which I did, called Down Satan. And uh, that was the first script I, I ever did for him. Uh, did another one called Son of Celluloid about a year later. Uh, and our sort of working relationship just kept going from there. And, and eventually when they decided to do the Hellraiser comics, he phoned me up and he said, you know, I'd love for you to kind of come on and take charge of this. So, Oh, wow. So how did the story come about then? Was that more from Clive or was it your story? Well, it was interesting, you know, the, the one thing I love about Clive is Clive is an incredibly collaborative person, and yeah. he's open to sort of anything that any other artist or thinker wants to put on the table, and so when they originally called me and said we want to do these comic books, um, you know, Clive had said, I've got a couple of notes, uh, and, you know, gave me maybe about five or six pages of sort of thoughts that he jotted down, and those pages were actually very interesting. They had nothing to do with Kirstie. They had nothing to do with sort of the story that you guys ended up reading. Um, it was a sort of a, a tale of uh, Pinhead back in the uh, Civil War times. It had to do with uh, sort of a 
uh, a slave finding the box and, and sort of the dynamic of what was going on at the Civil War at the time. Um, and, you know, sort of I went back and I think anytime you're a fan of anything and you're a creative person, you can't help but sort of want to go fanfic in your own head. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And, um, you know, I thought a lot about Hellraiser and what I'd like to do with that series if I ever got the chance to, to tackle it. And, you know, I had thought a lot about, you know, the movies are pretty bad now. I mean, anything <laughs> after the first and second movie, I think, are great. I think the third movie is a fun sort of mainstream, all right, horror film. And then after that, it's just all downhill. Um, and, you know, I thought it was really, I, I thought it would really be interesting to try to figure out a way to tie off the mythology that had sort of begun in one and two as a way to let fans who love those films sort of bridge over into an, an entirely new world. And so, you know, I kind of, I went back to, to Clive with the idea of, of, you know, bringing back Kirsty and, and making Pinhead sort of track towards humanity mm. and said, you know, what about this? Um, this is something, maybe it's totally insane. Maybe it's, maybe it's right on the money. And he really responded to it. And the conversation went from there and, and he was really passionate about, um, including the harrowers and making sure that we offered like a more grounded version of those characters yeah. uh, from the old epic series and and sort of the plot just developed from there. It's amazing because we were just saying in the podcast like what you've written there is really what what we would like to have written yeah. having seen the first two films. <laughs> it's like when you think about it, like you say, you think, what would I write? And you're like, yeah, that's what you want. You want Kirsty, Pinhead, this amazing arc of the story. It's just so so great for us to read it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really was what fans were after. Well, you know, it's funny. Like, you know, we in in you know, I'm I'm a geek. I, I I love you know all things horror. I love all things you know comics and films. And you know, I think there's this like weird stigma about fanfic that exists out there. You know yeah. that um, that it's sort of this like third tier kind of writing, and these are just oh, these are just fans who just want to come up with their own ideas, <laughs> but. You know, the only difference between, you know, what we're doing now in the comic books and, and what, you know, anybody who loves Hellraiser and might have written on their own is, is really just the, the inclusion of a publisher and opportunity. You know, mm. like, I am very blessed to be able to write, you know, fanfic for the fans. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, I think it's great that um, uh, that Clive sort of recognizes that, that you know, the, the fans are really the torchbearers for the <laughs> series, that you can create an icon and you can throw it out there. And then it really doesn't become, it becomes a collective thing, you know? And I'm just one fan in a huge community of fans that have embraced this character. And I just got super lucky to be able to run with it. Yeah. Did you, did you have any worries about what, when you were writing, that there might be some sort of a backlash from the fan community? Because they can be so vocal about what they do and don't like. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't not be terrified of that. Because... <laughs> Uh, the fans will be like the first one to tell you that you that you fucked up. So uh, I'm sorry. Can I curse on your? Podcast? Oh yeah, yeah. Go for it. Go um, for it. Yeah, they'll be the they'll be the first uh, the first ones to to sort of take the torch to you. And yeah. you know, and, and obviously we were making a huge gamble with sort of where we were going with the storyline. I mean, I think uh, I think there's a moment sort of in that first issue where you know, sort of Leviathan's torchbearer says, you know, you have to choose a name, and then we flip the page and we see Kirsty. I think that's a pretty good indication of where the series is about to go. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, you run a real risk there. I think of of uh, not losing people, but of of people going, okay, where are you going with this? Um, and I and I hope that we were able to pay that off in a really uh, in a really eloquent um, and respectful manner, so that 
sort of all the people who love this character feel that where we're you know where we sort of took it was a good direction and, and fitting for the the genre. Yeah, it was certainly very a big surprise the outcome. <laughs> I gotta say, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it, it's kind of interesting. You know, we were having this conversation that when you when you set up when you set up a conflict like that, the resolution is almost um, a foregone conclusion. You know, I mean, I think. Mm. Anybody who, who maybe got a sense early on of where it was going was probably not surprised when it got there. But I think, you know, what we were really trying to do was make this a story, not so much about the destination, but about the sort of tragedy of sort of um, sloughing off towards something that this inevitable fate that you kind of almost know is coming. And with every issue, you're just sort of like, oh, God, don't take another step toward it. But you can't. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, we were really trying to make sure that the characters worked that there, there was this sort of tragic sense of momentum uh, for both Pinhead and Kirsty, um, and then just make sure that every issue was just jam-packed with, you know, horror and gore and that great dialogue that sort of Pinhead is known for, and mm. hopefully we did that. Yeah, yeah I, mean, the, I think the, you did. The, yeah, well done. The dialogue <laughs> that we were saying before, the dialogue, you know, the way that Pinhead speaks in it is so good. It's so what you <laughs> imagine, you know, it's so kind of like, yeah, and... It's just fantastic when you watch the first two films and then you go into this story and you see how far it goes and you're like, wow, you know, it's such a huge, long journey now. Um, But yeah, amazing. (laughs) And we kept... My my hope was really always that you'd be able to take these eight issues, you know, the eight issues that I was able to write and sort of put those at the very end of the second film and think of it as a trilogy. That, you know, that was one trilogy and now we can move on and sort of tell different stories and Clive and Anthony and Rob and Mark can can keep playing in that sandbox and just keep broadening the world. Yeah, and it would be it would be amazing to see your arc as a film. We keep saying this on the podcast. It would be so cool to see it done as a movie. Hey, if anyone ever wants me to write it, man, <laughs> we all want you to write it. We need <laughs> yeah. someone to give you give the budget out. Right. It, it felt that when Clive came to me and was asking me about the comic books, it felt to me like a fan. And just my instincts as a writer, you know, and obviously Clive set up this whole world. I mean, Clive is the grandfather of, of Pinhead. So, you know, he is the be all end all and the quality control person for this series. Yeah. Um, so, you know, anything that I'm saying is really just my own opinions and thoughts as a fan. Uh, but for me, it felt like, well, before we go into the world of comics and before we sort of, um, you know, just have fun and sort of play around with a new dynamic that we really needed to sort of close off the story that we started 20 years ago um, with the characters that the fans really love. And let's do something for the fans and then go off and pull the new ones in. So hopefully that dynamic works. Yeah. And when you were working with Clive, um, did you talk to him at all about the original film that he made and sort of choices that he made back then for certain things and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, it's actually, you know, it's really interesting to have conversations with Clive about you know, about his past work, because, you know, Hellraiser was a good example of a first time director, you know, and you look at that movie and that movie still holds up. I mean, that's his first major film. And, you know, he would, you know, he talked a lot about, you know, the nerves he would have just going to set going, you know, what the fuck am I doing? You know, and, uh, you know, and then just things that happen through, you know, budgetary limitations and choices that, you know, uh, the scene, you know, where Frank comes up through the floorboards, I remember Clive saying yeah. it was originally supposed to be a much bigger scene. Um, and I think it works for its, you know, sense of simplicity. Uh, yeah. So, like, listening to Clive reminisce about, you know, making the original Hellraiser film and sort of not just the making of it, but where it came from in terms of, um, 
the sort of BDSM, the sexual metaphors, uh, where he was in his life and in terms of his own sexuality at that point is actually rather fascinating. Yeah. Um, when you were writing the comics, were, were there any moments when you felt you had to sort of compromise on what you would like to be doing um, as opposed to what other people wanted you to do? You're given eight issues. You're guaranteed eight. And that's what I knew I had from the start. But I had, you know, I think you can only, you have to service your story. And so I had the, I had a 24-issue arc planned in my head so that if I got the invitation to come back and do another eight, I knew where this was going. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of, um, I'm a big fan of stories that kind of know the bigger arc, that know where they're headed. You know, I'm, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, for example. <laughs> and, you know, I think... Uh, uh, Russ Davies and Stephen Moffat were both storytellers who knew what their end games were. Yeah. Uh, and they, they were able to, you know, you'd be able to put something in issue or episode two that played paid off in episode eight. And um, I love storytelling like that. So there were a couple things I sort of put in the comic that, you know, because I wasn't, I'm not continuing now, um, I wasn't able to develop. And so when you got further toward the end, when we knew there was going to be a handoff, uh, in issue seven and eight is actually really interesting um, that the 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 publisher was really like, don't include new hell stuff. Like, don't create mythology in hell. We want to leave it open for, you know, other writers to kind of come in and do that. And that's like, those are horrible handcuffs to have, you know, Ooh. where all of a sudden you get down into hell and you want to play around in there. Yeah. But it's, don't put anything new. You can only use existing elements, you know. Um, but I think that, you know, the 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 sort of happy accident of that was that, you know, we got those scenes with the female Cenobite, which I think really like underlined her character. And yeah. you get to bring the engineer back, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. in a cool way. Um, and I think we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, and then I think, you know, the biggest change really um, between sort of what I had written and what sort of Clive's input was, was really the Cenobites, the Cenobites themselves. Um, it was always those characters, those harrowers were always meant, and you guys can tell me if you notice this, um, in the first, I think it's the second issue where you meet the harrowers. Yeah. Uh, there's, that opening sequence is really like, it's the equivalent of the Lord of the Rings where it's like, and my axe and my bow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of announcing that like, I'm a prostitute and I'm a priest and I'm a doctor, you know? And, and, you know, I, I was always worried that that was going to feel like we were really hitting the nail on the head with those characters. Um, but the payoff really was always intended to be that their Cenobite selves later on would essentially have dominion over those uh, human experiences so that you would have one Cenobite devoted to exploring sexuality. You'd have mm. one Cenobite devoted to exploring art. You'd have one Cenobite devoted to exploring, you know, um, medical and physiology. And yeah. Uh, you know, Clive, I think, sort of took that and made them into something more bestial at the very end of issue eight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They were always supposed to be representative of their sort of corner of human experience. Yeah, I think, I mean, that we've just literally spoken about that in our podcast, about how that kind of didn't pay off quite as well. When you see the new Cenobites, I was a bit like, oh, they're quite abstract. Right. You know, they're kind right. of... How does that equal that? Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, especially earlier on where you see the old Cenobites and their kind of human selves... And then yeah. you kind of do the same thing in the comic where you see the new Cenobites, uh, the new guys, the Harrowers, and the new Cenobites, and you're like, oh, you know, it doesn't have that kind of same rhythm, that kind of same rhyming thing. Yeah, that, you know, and you want a symmetry to it, you know, yeah. and 
you know, there, it's it's always very interesting when you you sort of look at characters who are representative of something, you know. And my my hope was that in issue three, um, which was I think a tremendously fun issue for me to write because it's sort of those flashbacks. Yeah, uh, yeah. That we were able to humanize them enough so that you know they didn't feel quite like just what they were supposed to be, which was basically a metaphor. Um, you know, because character is hugely important to me as a writer and to Clive. And so, you know, the idea was, you know, we have to make these things that are unique and individual and uh, work as people, but are also, you know, sort of representative of sort of what this end game is that we're going to play out, you know, seven issues later. Um, and so that was always a challenge. And then, you know, because of the way that the, the comic is structured, you, inter you introduce these characters in issue two, and then you're killing them off by the beginning of issue five. Yeah. So um, you have to put a lot of characterization into a very short span of time. And so much of issue four is really Kirsty underground in the subway as well. So um, hopefully we were able to sort of jam pack enough of the harrowers into those first early issues that, you know, in issue four and five, that you actually are really invested in, in their outcome and their fate. Um, and I'm and I'm curious to see what people have to say about you know what did you guys think of the Cenobites when you saw them at the end of issue eight? Because um, I'm you know that, I'm assuming that was an edit by Clive. I sent in a script in which they were very, you know, sort of designed differently and defined by those by those uh, sort of uh, I guess you call them professionals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I was a bit surprised that they weren't more sort of stylized or specific. They were just sort of. A kind of bit like generic monsters, really. Right. And um, I did find that a bit surprising, mainly because in all the other films, the Cenobites are so, you know, specific. And yeah. they often relate to what they were when they were a human. Um, so I I wasn't quite sure, you know, why that had been done. But I, I still enjoyed right. it. I still enjoyed the fact that they were all horrible monsters. <laughs> I'm interested to know, you know, and I haven't talked to him about this, I'm interested to know how much of it all... Um, writing and painting the Aberat uh, has influenced Clive's sense of creature design. Yeah. Um, you know, because I do think that there is something to be said about, you know, the fan and the fans and what their reference point are for things, you know, uh, for better or worse, you know, in what, nine films, 10 films, the fans have sort of come to equate um, the Cenobites as sort of humanoid creatures wrapped around a a gimmick or, or not a gimmick, but wrapped around a theme. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's healthy to respect that and then sort of evolve it a little bit in terms of its sort of intellectual approach. But um, I'll be very interested to see how these sort of more bestial Cenobites factor into the the arc that they're working on now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of harder as the reader. Like you say, you get invested in the Harrowers. And then when you see like a, a monster that's very abstract, it's kind of hard to, even to see what it right. is it's very hard to then kind of care you know that they got screwed over basically that they're in hell now and that they're you know right. it's it's harder to sort of connect to them as characters now i think now i feel terrible i haven't really been following uh the new issues as closely as i should they're up to 11 now right i think 11 is the one that's coming out next week or yeah this yeah. Week. yeah um are, are the are the sort of more monster centibytes featured in those very heavily or are they just sort of in the background they're yeah, not, they're still not, not that heavily. No, it's it's more. Okay. It's, it seems to be more focusing on Tiffany and Kirsty, and also okay. Elliot in the real world. Yeah, on Earth. Cool. That so was it, always sort of the plan. I mean, I, I had pitched 
I had pitched the next eight, and you know, the, it was always intended to really be a more global uh, story about pulling back the camera a little bit, sort of getting a wider look at, at um, you know, cultural taboos as well, not just you know, sort of you know, Anglo-Saxon <laughs> views of of what is and isn't taboo. And, yeah. and you know, I had always wanted, um, you know, I had always hoped that we'd be able to take uh, Tiffany and uh, Harry Demore of all people on a <laughs> Uh, a journey around the world with Elliot um, in search oh, wow. of the one, uh, the one device that was the very opposite of the layman configuration uh, that could, that would be able to get Elliot access to the angels uh, to make a deal for his salvation. Because certainly nobody is fucked up and horrible as Elliot is ever going to be able to earn forgiveness. He's going to have to con his way into heaven if he's going to yeah. do it. So. Wow! So that was your that was the over that your longer story then. Yeah, the um all right, well I'll give you guys I haven't I haven't said this anywhere else, so I'll give it to you guys. Um it, it just it's interest again, it's interesting fanfic at this point, but my hope was always that uh I had seeded a few references to an un, unspecific consequence of Kirsty's destroying the yeah. box yeah. references. Um that to me was always that you would discover that the boxes were not so much gateways to hell but they were locks on a much bigger door. Um, right. So that essentially uh, the the boxes were constructed as sort of uh, pressure release valves on a much larger gateway uh, that could potentially be opened. And that um, by destroying these locks, so to speak, at the end of issue eight, there was a sequence uh, that, I, that I wrote that I guess got cut in which um, we... We would the series would have ended on a uh, Japanese uh, engineer in Japan um, putting together a clock, and the audience expectation would obviously be that he's building a box or some such. But we sort of angle down on the boy behind him, his son, who's making a um, who's making an origami cube uh, that begins to glow and flicker like a box. And the idea would be that now that the layman devices have been destroyed. Um, anybody with any uh, talent whatsoever essentially can make a device, can make a doorway. Oh wow! Uh, oh. So so that so that Kirsty unwittingly um, thinking that she had destroyed any doorway back uh, to Earth and you know essentially any obligation to do her job as a Cenobite um, is now busier than ever. Uh, she's popping up all over the globe. She <laughs> has to do this job of hers, and uh, Pinhead because he was very smart, um, created a threat even bigger than him that uh, only he has the knowledge to destroy, and he has to leverage the, sort of the seraphim, he has to leverage that against his forgiveness and his passage into heaven. Oh, wow. Oh, my way. So that's always, that was always where I was going to go with it. I have no idea where Clive's going to go with it now. But, um, yeah, it was to me it was always about, you know, it was always about how is Pinhead going to con his way back Yeah. Uh, I mean, back in the heaven. Sorry, that would have been great. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, because we were just well, talking about that, you know, about you know, how that was. That's it'll really suck if that's where they're going with it, because then I've just spoiled everything. But uh, <laughs> that that was that was where I was hoping and how it would develop, and that's what I always pitch to them. And and I'll be really I'll be really fascinated to see where where they develop it. I mean, it's a really interesting thing for a, for an artist, for a writer. You know, you put you put these seeds in there of this story. And we were commenting on them saying, you know, that's quite, there's something there. There's something big there about these box. 
And then in the new, in the episode, uh, issue 10, yeah. was it, I think, uh, they've kind of like, oh, well, there are other boxes now. The thing was, once those ones are destroyed, now there are other boxes. Yeah. The and bo- I was kind of like, oh. They said that oh. the, when a box is destroyed, its power shifts to another device, mm-hmm. I think. So uh, you, okay. you were kind of like, that's, that's cool, but it doesn't quite fit with that's what you were saying. Cheap. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I, I have all the respect in the world for Clive, so, you know, I certainly can't criticize, but um, I, I think it's disingenuous to, uh, you know, to just, I, I, you know, it's the same thing in horror movies, right? When the villain dies and then, and then he comes back ten times. Yeah. Uh, I think it's disingenuous to say, you know, oh, look, they did this and they had this small victory, but it wasn't really a victory. They're just going to have to go do it all again for the sake of the series. Mm. Um I think you have to figure out another way to another objective for them to have to go accomplish that isn't just about oh well now there's more boxes. Mm, yeah. Um, but they're very smart people, and I'm sure they'll figure mm-hmm. out a way to pay that off in a very smart way. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, moving away from the comics for a moment, um, sure. I've got a question I'd like to ask you. If you were given the opportunity to either write the apparently upcoming remake or <laughs> the next Hellraiser sequel. What sort of things would you be pitching to the studios, do you think? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the... Well, let me start with the remake. Um, <laughs> I think the remake really is... Uh, I don't think remaking Hellraiser is a bad idea. You know, um, I think a lot of what ended up in the comic sort of came from my having thought about what that remake should be because they've been talking about it for years. And, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project now with Darren Bowsman, uh, the uh, director of some of the Saw films. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was approached way back when about the Hellraiser remake. And, uh, you know, had, had told me a couple of stories about, you know, what Dimension uh, films had wanted and was saying that it was, you know, one, one idea was, oh, can we set it in a sorority? You know, oh, and, no. you know, <laughs> and, and, it, and it feels to me like that that, and I know a little bit, I know Todd Farmer, um, who was the last person attached yeah. uh, to, on the script, and Patrick Lussier. And, I, and I'm sure, I don't know what their take is, and I'm sure it was interesting, because those guys are pretty smart about how they approach things. Yeah. I don't think that's ever going to get made. Like, I would be stunned if, if, if it eventually does. We keep saying the same thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, they made the this last piece of shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, strictly... Um, legally to hold on to the to the film rights yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. if they ever want to do the remake so you know we're now at a point where apparently we're just making movies because we have a legal obligation to yeah. do so um and that's a terrible motivation for making any kind of art even if it's just the most consumerist thing you can imagine it's, it's an awful motivation to make it um so you know i think at this point it's just smarter let's not talk about remaking it let's just keep the franchise going you know we've set up a pretty good rhythm for how these things happen. Someone finds the box, Pinhead shows up, terrible shit happens, Pinhead is vanquished, and we'll do it all again the next time. <laughs> um, that's not a bad rhythm for most fans, right? Like, people enjoy uh, the sort of this sort of carnival of it all. Um, it's just about doing that well, and we yeah. haven't done that in, God, six movies? Four, you know, mm. seven movies? Um and I, you know, and so much of what I would, so much of what I would want to pitch, uh, you know, for a sequel, I got to do in the comic book. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my thing would be, 
you know, in terms of pinhead on cinema or on film, you know, I, I, I would think unless you really are committed to doing a complete re like reinvention in a really brave way, then let's just commit ourselves to doing the sequels the right way. Um, yeah. and, and then just making sure that fucking Doug is the guy behind the makeup <laughs> and the scares are good and the characters are interesting and, you know, things are as they should be. Does that mm. make sense? Yes, yeah. it does. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Who the, hell, who the hell ever thought you could recast Doug Bradley? Uh, <laughs> uh, who knows? No. And, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that at some point there isn't, you know, merit in, in trying to find someone else to play Pinhead, you know. Uh, you know, at some point, Doug's just not going to be interested, or he will he will age out of the role, or whatever. But it's like if you're going to do that, put some real thought into finding an actor who can yeah. pick that character up and like give it that gravitas. You know, it's like I was talking to someone the other day about um, Hannibal Lecter, right? Like they they want to do this uh, Hannibal Lecter TV series on NBC, um, and everyone was like, "Oh, it's a terrible idea because it's not going to be Anthony Hopkins," and I'm like. Well, that's not true. You can find someone to play that role who's just as good. Um, there's an actor, I think, Jared Harris, who's on Fringe right now, uh, and he's done a couple of things. Um, he was in Benjamin Button with David Fincher, who I think would be brilliant. But mm -hmm. they'll go off and they'll cast someone who sucks, you know, <laughs> like because he's young and hot or something. And it's so it's just about just putting some fucking effort into finding someone who can really personify what that character's about. Yeah. Yeah. Which of course no one will ever do. So <laughs> Yeah. Um and I you know and so when I got the opportunity to, to 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 work on the comics and and you know I gotta I gotta go back and I gotta pick up the the last couple issues. Um, you know, for me, that's the best place that a Hellraiser fan is gonna find a Hellraiser story anytime soon. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Unless they start doing some crossovers, in which case I'm all for that. You yeah. Know? Who would you like to see Pinhead with then? Oh God, um, I, I think crossovers are fun. I don't think they're mythology, but I think they're fun to do. Um, I think you can actually make a really good case uh, for Kruger, for Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, I know that sounds odd, but ostensibly you have a character who um, was a was a pedophile and a child murderer, and you know that certainly speaks to me of someone who is interested in extending the human experience. Uh, so is he a character who might have heard about and sought out the box at some point uh -huh. in his life? Perhaps. Like, yeah. You can make a narrative case for that. Um, and what I would happen if Freddy Krueger opened the box and got turned into a Cenobite? <laughs> Jesus Christ, that would be awesome. <laughs> hell out of that. Um, you probably could make a good narrative case for someone like Michael Myers. Um, the problem is, is like, you know, and Pinhead certainly has fallen into that trap of like, eventually all horror icons become jokes. You know, they all yeah. like they become gimmicks. They become sort of representative of a brand rather than a, an actual thing. And you know, Pinhead is humorless. He doesn't have like the wink and the nod. Mm. He's not supposed to anyway. Certainly in the in the later films, he he does, but um, he's not as sort of like lightheartedly treated as a lot of the other horror icons can be. Like. I'd never want to see Pinhead fight Jason. You know what I mean? Like, mm, yeah. Um, so I think there's probably only one or two potential crossovers that you could build a story around. And my thing is like, you can make them all work, but I, I like a story. Like I need there to be an actual narrative reason why these two people are coming together. Yeah. 
Yeah, like the idea of having, you know, Freddy Krueger, you know, opening the box because he's into something perverse like that. Right. That makes sense. That's instantly right. interesting. It's not just going to be loads of fight scenes. and Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to be like Pinhead goes to sleep one day in Springwood and he's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. It's interesting what you were saying about the films as well, because we were, we were discussing this before with the with the comic arc that you did, where you talked about um, the Marchand uh, making lots of different devices mm-hmm. and lots of different things. People have been sort of saying, well, that kind of cuts out Hellraiser 4 and kind right. of says Hellraiser 4 didn't happen. Was that like your intentional thing of saying, OK, after three or after two, these films are yeah. kind of not I, canon? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the only things that you can really... Clive invested himself in one and two. Yeah. And for me, that's those are the only ones that really matter. You know, I think... Uh, and so so for us, it was always... Our Bible was the first two films and the, and the novella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there are a lot of, like, Hellraiser fans who probably noticed... And there are some things that I wrote and then went back and then went, oh, man, that contradicts something. Um, <laughs> you know, those little, those little sort of nitpicks of fandom that you can find well like what does this mean or this contradicts this or there's a really good question where the hell is the house like where is the cotton house right yep yep we've been there that's 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 not a that's not an unreasonable question to ask right but um it's sort of implied that it may or may not be in england in the movies but there's so many american (laughs) actors in the film that you could make a case that it's somewhere in america so you know a little bit it's about you know we do cheat a little bit right in terms of breaking some of the rules like yeah. I, you know i think about my feeling about rules in general is that um you should always break you know if you're going to break a rule you should break it or um in service to the story and the characters you know mm. um never in like disservice to the franchise right so mm. you know if if it works for the comic books to sort of say to to put a foot down and say despite all of the indications to the contrary, the house is in America because it makes for a better story. Well, then I think like people can make those small adjustments in their head and for kind of forgive it. Right. Like, um, but obviously like you wouldn't just say like pinhead has wings. Cause it's cool. <laughs> like you, you can't just invent shit, you know, just for fun. Like you know, there has to be something that, that makes it work for the story and the characters, uh, because once you just start doing stuff because it's cool, like you're just you're just robbing the material of its of its potential. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One other yeah. um, quick thing I wanted to ask was about the process of doing the comic. Yeah, like how much input did you get in terms of the look of things? I mean, we spoke a little bit about Clive saying he wanted the Cenobites to be like this, but say for example the new Kirsty Pinhead and stuff like right. that. I mean, you wrote that. Did you write a look down and then that got changed, yeah, or I mean, was you it always kept the same? Give your artist, uh, you always want to give your artist some sort of a reference, um, and so you know I, I can kind of say, you know, especially in the in the eighth issue, the problem is it's not a problem certainly. Um, Clive is an artist, right? So you know I can all day I can come up with and, and, and write and describe designs for things that I think would be interesting, but Clive's not going to be able to not touch that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's going to want to put his fingerprint on it in his design. So. You know, for the the Cenobites that I had suggested, you know, I uh, the the prostitute harrower was supposed to be um, sort of badly wounded and scarred uh, all over her body in such a way that the wounds were very like vaginal. Um, uh-huh. And the uh, the doctor 
was supposed to sort of have these um these uh i don't know bandoliers or sashes of like old like 1920s like medical equipment uh with a portable gas-powered generator on his back that fed out to tubes on his arm <laughs> um where he would have saw blades attached to them and different attachments you know and so the kirsty for example um they got her look almost exactly right but i had always imagined her sort of um the pins sort of starting at her forehead and going as like a braid down her back yeah oh uh, wow yeah so it was more feminine it wasn't exactly like uh the pinhead design uh-huh. um tiffany is another good example of uh you know I never imagined her with like tattoos and fishnets. Like, yeah, yeah. That's a good example of like what happens when you don't get too, when you don't get specific and your artist, <laughs> you know, like you just, I described her as I think being certainly like sexy and powerful. Uh, and that translated somehow to like short skirt fishnet and like weird tattoos. Yeah. Um, and I, and fans like that was one point of like contention, I think for fans was that they felt that like, like Tiffany was fetishized in a, in a weird way that made her completely unrelatable to the character in the movies, uh-huh. uh, you know, so that when you look at the second one, you know, when she's younger and then all of a sudden your character reappears here, you're like, wow, she went from that to that. Yeah. It was, it was always meant to be, you know, what's the least expected version of, of this character. Um, but I think, you know, I think if I had to go back and do it all again, I would have specified that, that her, uh, her clothing be a little less, uh, yeah, a little less fetishistic. <laughs> you wrote, do not put her in fishnets. Right, right. <laughs> I don't, I don't fishnets. <laughs> um, and that's certainly no slight against anybody. I mean, I think one of the things that we really had on this book um, from beginning to end was just a amazing set of voices. Like, Jordy's coloring work in, in basically the last, um, I don't know, five or six books is amazing um leo's art leonardo manco's art in the first uh two was like really raw and gritty and great it had a Mm. texture to it Mm. um and then when stephen thompson came in and took over his had a really nice polish and i love the way that he frames things uh and so i think you know leo really came in in those first two issues and i think gave us two bridge issues of grit and grain that really plugged into the first two movies. Yeah. Uh, and then sort of pulled us into the realm of the comic, which like Stephen Thompson is amazing at. So, um, you know, I think we had a really lovely transition in terms of the art, the artistry of the books. And I think they look amazing. Yeah, yeah they, they do. do. Yeah. They look awesome. It's such a, such a quality package, you know, as a fan, you start to read it and you're just like, wow, this yeah. is what I want, you know, this is, this is really good. This hasn't just been dashed off, you know, in a second. This is really worth it, you know. Yeah, yeah. well, that was what really, you know, what sold me. I mean, we had the initial meeting with the folks from Boom at Clive's house back when I lived in L.A., and, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I was worried a little bit. Like, I was like, mm, like, are they just doing this to make a quick buck, and what's this <laughs> going to be? Um, but I trusted Clive, and, and, you know, we'd worked with IDW on Seduth, which was our comic book before this, um, and I had such a great experience there. And the folks at Boom are so good at what they do, and they are so supportive. I mean, like, you know, despite just some of their logistical things in terms of, like, oh, don't add too much mythology for the handoff or whatever once, once we get past eight, they let us do – they let us kill a baby inside of a woman. Like, <laughs> like – that's 
<laughs> I, did, I was even worried about that. And, and they were like, no, man, do it. It's great. <laughs> so, you know, I think uh, I can't give them enough credit. So. <laughs> Well, I know that a lot, most of the fan community, if, all the ones I've spoken to, have really enjoyed the comic, and it's been really well received, and we've we've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, I, the, the the fans are like, you know, the fans are who you do it for, really. Yeah. I mean, th- this was like our gift to fans who have been screwed for twenty years <laughs> of bad sequels and materials, and just sort of like come and find this and read it. You'll love it. We promise. So, uh, hopefully, that's been true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once again, thank you so much for chatting to us today, Chris. It's been really great to talk to you. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And I, I, you know, I hope we get to talk again down the road sometime. Yeah, me too. Good luck yeah. with whatever your next project will be. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Hopefully you should be hearing about it soon. So. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you Thanks very so much. much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there we go. Mm. That was fun. That was great. He's such a nice guy. Yeah. So again, thank you, Chris, if you're listening to this, for speaking to us. And um, we hope to speak to him again in the future, hopefully, at some point. Absolutely, and find out what he's uh, getting up to next. Yeah. So, thanks again for listening. Our next podcast, we're going to have a fan feedback slash geek out chat. So, we're just going to read some of the emails and things we've got on Twitter and Facebook and all that sort of things from you guys and have a chat about them. So, if you do have anything you do want us to talk about, then you probably have got a few days after this goes up before we're going to record the next one. So get online, get on the Facebook page, get on the Twitter feed, send us emails, hellraiserpodcast at hotmail.co.uk. If there's anything you want to talk about or you want us to talk about, then let us know and we'll see if we can have a chat about what you want to talk about. Yeah. Cool. In the meantime, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Peter. And thanks again to Christopher Monfett for the wonderful interview. Yes. And we'll see you all very soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.